well. So that's such a good question, Dan. And it's really helped me realize something that throughout my life, I have loved risk because I love the focus that it gives me. When I'm outside my comfort zone, I have to really concentrate on what I'm doing. So for me, I, I just hate doing repetitive, boring stuff. I like to take risk. And I think that was true very early on. So the, the idea that adventure helped me to concentrate, that's a really good point. Welcome to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life, a podcast about people's personal journeys of discovery and recreation. I'm Dan Simon. We dig deep to understand the essence of each guest. How did they get to this point in their life? We all have stories to tell about our own lives that help the rest of us realize who we are and what we could become. As a life coach, I've always been intrigued by the stories people tell. What were the trials, tragedies, and triumphs they encountered while navigating through life? There are no mistakes in life, only experiences and lots of contrast. If we can have compassion for others, can't we have the same for ourselves? That's always been my personal mission, to remind people the truth of who they are, to remind them that they've done their very best. In each episode, that's what you'll find, a beautiful soul doing their best to create a life that's fulfilling and rewarding. Enjoy the stories. Today's guest is Kay Skora from HaveMoreFun.org. Kay has done uh, a lot of different things, worn many hats, and it's very difficult to actually uh, describe the breadth of it. You may just have to listen to the entire podcast, but she's gone from being a bio biochemist, because that's where all the nerdy boys were, to being an advertising guru, to being a social justice warrior, a performer, a, a yoga teacher, a speaker, and uh, as well as a nude windsurfer on a variety of different beaches across Crete. Just suffice it to say that her story illustrates how far a desire for adventure and novelty will in fact get you, coupled with a couple of inspiring teachers and some very strong grandparents that actually can get you quite a long way. Because Kay has been successful in a lot of things. Perhaps she has a horrible temper, as she'll tell you, but uh, her story is quite enchanting and uh, so enchanting and interesting that we had to carry it over to two parts. So anyway, let's dive into part one, and here is Kay. Kay, welcome. And did I miss anything? Well, Dan, that was, that was a pretty good summary, but I think as we talk, other things might creep out into the conversation. I, th I think they probably will. Um, so just tell me, what happened after, after the spaceship landed? <laughs> well, thank you very much for having this alien on your planet. You're what welcome. happened after the spaceship landed you know, when I stepped down from the spaceship, all I ever wanted to be was a circus performer. Mm. And yeah, it was really, when I was a kid, that was all I wanted to be. And my family were quite into theater and so on, but they said, 
well, first of all, you can't be a circus performer because you're too clever. Uh, and then when I said, well, in that case, can I be a dancer? They said, um, you know what? You're a little bit funny looking to be a dancer. Dancers are usually quite pretty and, well, let's just say you're not. <laughs> so so uh, then they started buying me books because they thought I was clever. And I fell in love with Charles Dickens writing at a really early age and always wanted to be the boy. I wanted to be David Copperfield. I wanted to be Oliver Twist. Never wanted to be the girl. So every photograph of me when I'm a young child, if, I'm, if I've been forced to wear a dress, I look deeply grumpy. So I'm not sure if that's what you meant when you said what happened after the spaceship landed, but that was what happened way back in my life. So, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Um, how old were, were you, do you think, when you were told circus performer, dancer, it's really not going to be your thing, Kay? What, what age uh, were you, do you think? I think I was probably seven or eight years old when I was told circus performer, dancer, probably not. And I think that happened for two reasons. I was possibly the most competitive child in school. And I was in an elementary school where we took tests from a very early age and the higher up in the ranking you came, the further back in the classroom you sat. And I always wanted the seat, the top seat. So I, I worked really hard in school. I was always in the top seat. If anyone else beat me in exams, I would be furious and I'd work really hard to get back into that top seat. So I think my family took that, took advantage of that and said, oh, well, you're going to be a clever girl. So drop the dancing in the circus and, and be a clever girl. So that's what happened. I was the clever girl. Um, and you had other siblings as well? I have a baby brother. He, he came along when I was 10 years old. And my mother, who is still alive at the age of 90, is fond of saying that we were both mistakes. I came along too early and he came along too late. <laughs> well, that's, and, that's, a, that's a nice compliment. Yeah, yeah. In spite of that, we adore each other. Uh, although I did not adore him when he was small, as you can imagine because for a teenage girl, there is nothing more annoying than having a four or five-year-old hanging around the place. But now, yes, now we are the best of friends. We go out a lot. He lives in London too. He has two adorable daughters. And we've, we've got over the early years conflict. Um, so tell me more about the desire to be a circus performer. What enchanted you about that? Well, I remember being at the circus when I was very small and looking around the tent when a clown or an acrobat did something amazing. And I would look around the tent and all the audience would have their mouths open. They'd be going, oh! and I just, I distinctly remember thinking, I want to make people do that. I want to make people take a deep in breath and gasp. Mm. So that's, it was all about ego little tiny seven-year-old ego. But I was also very bendy as a child. So I could do things like cross my feet behind my neck. I could uh, go into a crab, you know, 
upward bridge and walk around the gym. I could climb ropes just like that. So I was already in the habit of entertaining people with my contortionism. So it seemed natural to me. So what other things did you do to perform to get that outlet, even though you couldn't be a circus performer as you were growing up? What did I do to perform when I was growing up? I loved to be the reader in assembly at school. So if they were looking for somebody to read from anything, I would be up there. Whenever teacher said, Can't, will someone come up here and do this? I would be the first one with my hand up. To the point where teachers used to say, would anyone apart from Kay like to come up here and do this? Because they were so bored with me. After a while. <laughs> And I, yeah, I used to like to be the center of attention. I would climb trees too high and then not be able to get down and threaten to jump, you know, all of that stuff. Not in a dark, suicidal way, in a look at me sort of a way. So yeah, I love that. And I think partly also because I was very small. I'm not huge now, but I was an extremely small, skinny child. And I just had to make a noise to get myself noticed. You know, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to picture this, Kay. That, and I know you said that's well. It's an ego thing to be the center of attention, but isn't there more there? That that desire to be uh, uh, an adventurer, an explorer, to be out there and experience new things and put yourself out there is. It's not necessarily just a just an ego thing, is it? There's more to it, isn't there? Wow. So that's such a good question, Dan. And it's really helped me realize something that throughout my life, I have loved risk because I love the focus that it gives me. When I'm outside my comfort zone, I have to really concentrate on what I'm doing. So for me, I, I just hate doing repetitive, boring stuff. I like to take risk. And I think that was true very early on. So the, the idea that adventure helped me to concentrate, that's a really good point. I think also I come from a family that speaks its mind and particularly on subjects of social justice. So nobody who comes near my family gets away with being racist, sexist or anything is because we call them on it. Mm -hmm. And I was in that environment from a very young age. And in particular, I had two fierce grandmothers with whom I spent a lot of time because both of my parents were working. We didn't really have any money when I was a kid. So mom and dad both working and the grannies brought me up and they were the fiercest women on the block. So wow. I so you learned very early on what convic conviction meant and... Uh, how to stand up for yourself and, uh, and say what was on your mind. That was, that was the example that you were given, huh? That's absolutely right. And I didn't even know it was fearlessness at the time. I just thought it was the way one behaved. When I look back at some of the things that my grandmothers said and did, I think, wow, that was really brave for, okay, they were only in their 40s and 50s. They were very young when I was born, but they were brave women. Yeah, that's a that's very interesting because 
most of us are raised to um, not have a big footprint, not to stand out, to not get in trouble. You know, that's one thing that uh, I always rebelled against growing up was that uh, this idea that uh, you have to stay out of trouble and and have a good image and uh, make a good impression and go to the right school and all that kind of stuff. And um, I always I always hated that uh, uh, that idea. I didn't know quite why, but uh, the way you were raised was certainly different than uh, than is typical for for most of us. I, I've only come to realize that relatively recently, you know. And again, you're really good at this question thing, because I've I've just remembered an incident when I was at primary school. We had a girls' playground and a boys' playground and a mixed playground. I wasn't too keen on hanging out in the girls' playground, but. Mm-hmm. I was in there one day and I was looking over the wall into the boys' playground, which was on a lower level. And there was a little boy called Peter in my class who, had I known about these things at the time, I would have said he was probably gay. He was quite effeminate, very sensitive, cried easily. I adored him and he was very handsome too. If I think I was probably eight or nine when this incident happened. And I was looking over the wall into the boys' playground and some of the other boys were bullying him. They had him in a corner and they were shouting and laughing at him. And I remember I walked down the steps into the boys' playground, which like, you didn't do that. Girls did not go in the boys' playground. And I just walked up there and said, you leave him alone. Mm. And that didn't only come from the grandparents, but it also came from that reading Charles Dickens when I was very young, because, you know, Charles Dickens was a great social activist. Right. He really always pointed up what was going wrong, the injustice in life. And I think I definitely was channeling my inner Charles Dickens at that point as well. I'm sorry, what effect do you think that when, and I'm sure you probably have a lot of examples of that, but that's interesting. That one just sort of came, came to mind for you. What effect do you think that had, that action you took to stand up for that, that young boy? Uh, what effect did that have on your life? You know, one of the effects that it had on me, and as I'm speaking to you, I can feel it in my body. After I had stormed down there and shouted at them, after my rage had subsided, I was terrified. I didn't really realize what I was doing until it was too late. And I've done that a lot in my life. And I have to confess, you know, the downside of K-score is I have a fierce and horrible temper. And why is that a a downside? Well, (laughs) (laughs) okay, let's just say I'm not married anymore. Um, sometimes I do fly off the handle. Sometimes I have to really step back, take, take a deep breath, find the best way to express my rage. Because I know the best way to express my rage is not always by shouting at people or telling them that they're wrong. So I've done a lot of work on myself trying to express my rage in different ways but sometimes it still bubbles up. And if we're really being honest here, it particularly bubbles up if I've had a couple of glasses of wine. Thank you for that, Kay. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, it, it it brings to mind just the whole idea of the ability to express the emotions. And, you know, I'd rather be dealing with somebody that's that's able to express them, even though occasionally it might go over, overboard or, or be a little uncomfortable for other people versus somebody that's always trying to keep it bottled up and not express it and because and, it's so unacceptable to have those feelings and to, and to bring them up. So, you know, kudos to you to have that ability to bring that up. And, you know, you can always clean, you can always clean things up afterwards. You know, I can always say you're sorry if, if, you, yes. if you hurt somebody's feelings, but uh, aren't you far better off with the ability to, uh, to address those feelings that come up without, uh, without judging them or automatically out of habit thinking, Oh, I can't, I can't, do that i can't express that it's going to get me in trouble yeah i i do tend to agree with you and i i'm not comfortable around people who don't express their emotions i think also that's one of the reasons why people in my family tend to live to their 90s because we don't bottle things up i do genuinely believe that there is a, a physical impact of it i think it's good for our health yeah no absolutely Absolutely. It's, uh, I just read a, uh, some report of a study the other day that people that are, I think the way it quote it was contentious, live much longer than the, the, than the don't worry, be happy people that pretend they don't have a care in the world about anything and never get upset about anything. They have shorter lives. Wow, that is interesting. And don't get me wrong, because I am happy quite a lot of the time. And I do laugh to the point of almost pissing myself. Here we go. Quite often. <laughs> <laughs> I told you up front that you don't have to uh, monitor any of the uh, any of the sweary words. I can't think of a better expression for laughing a lot than that one. Oh yeah, I do have the other side as well. And another primary school story I remember was reading "Ring of Bright Water." I don't remember the author's name. It's about otters. We had a silent reading session in class and I was reading this and reading it to myself and something very funny happened. I could picture these baby otters doing something and it made me laugh. So I laughed out loud in the classroom and the teacher made me go and stand in the corner because she assumed that I had been talking to my neighbor and I was furious about that because it seemed so unjust that I was really in the book. I was really feeling the book. And that was why I laughed. And she misjudged me. I never forgave her for that, Mrs. Fretwell. I remember your name. <laughs> I'll get you. <laughs> you never had the opportunity to, uh, to, to explain it, huh? She just made no. up her mind. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get my revenge on the other side. Uh, okay. Um, let's talk some more about adventure and yeah, it's mm -hmm. a couple of things that come to mind and yeah, I think you and I have some similarities, uh, in terms of seeking something that's, um, that's a little bit on the edge of the envelope that's can be a little bit dangerous that, uh, that really makes you come alive. I, um, um, yeah, I'm a pilot. I don't, I don't have a plane any longer, but, um, you know, I used to, when I used to fly, um, 
you know, when you're up there and I, and I still remember the, my, my solo, the, uh, my instructor was a, a young girl by the name of Jill Wagner. Uh, this was well, a long time ago, almost 30 years ago. And, um, and I had about 10 hours and she said, uh, we landed and she said, go ahead, taxi over to the FBO. And she said, okay, take it. Uh, I'm getting out, uh, take it out, uh, do three touch and goes and then come back. And so the first time you're, you're going to, uh, fly the plane by yourself without, without anybody there that something goes wrong, you know, what do you do? And it taught me that you don't have anybody to rely on uh, and it's all up to you, period. You could, uh, you could key the mic all you want and talk to the uh, tower, but nobody else is flying the plane. But, uh, you know, I can still remember how terrifying that was that, uh, you mean, what? You know, and after you, after you do that, you know, after I did it, you know, there's just this feeling of exhilaration that, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Wow. And uh, I've kind of sought in my life lots of those kinds of experiences um, that, uh, that were a little bit edgy. And um, it always changes you when you, when you force yourself to do something that's, that's uh, uncomfortable, that's scary. Uh, wow. It, well, I'm not quite as crazy as you are, Dan. I don't fly planes on my own. I haven't even gotten to the scary stuff, but that's the show's oh. not, the show's not yeah. about me. It's about you. <laughs> <laughs> I, All right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one more. Go on, go on. What, uh, the uh, the biggest impact on my life was the last day of 2010. I, I was in New Zealand, in Queenstown, New Zealand, and I went to and I was there just kind of by accident. With you know, I get into the whole story. I just happened to be there and. Uh, and uh, I decided to go look at the uh, Karoo River bungee jump, which is the site of the very first uh, bungee jump. The guy named A.J. Hackett, New Zealand, um, invented the whole thing. And uh, you know, these Kiwis are unbelievable in terms of their sense of adventure. And I had, I'm, I'm scared of heights. It's, it's, heights make me nervous. And uh, I thought, man, I gotta go look and see what, that's, see what it's like. And I went to the, to the uh, site and the thing was just mesmerizing. Um, the people, it was summertime. It was actually December 29th. So it was summer in, in uh, New Zealand. And these people are jumping off. There's two different platforms and they're jumping off forwards, backwards, upside down. They're, some of them are naked. You get to, you can jump for free if you take your clothes off. Um, and, <laughs> and I don't know, after an hour of watching this and there's Aerosmith is blaring on the, on the speakers and it's, it's this big party and you're the viewing platform is not far, maybe 20 yards from where they're jumping. And something came over me and said, hey, you got to do this, Dan. I don't know. You don't know if you're ever going to be back in New Zealand. You better do this. And, um, and again, shortening the story, that took me two more days to, to uh, work my way into it. And I, I ended up jumping it uh, a little bit after noon on the, on the 31st of December. And I had never, that was the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do. You know, when I, when I stood up there and my, uh, my jump master Sully had his hand on my belt and I stood up there and 
shimmy my little feet to the to the ledge and look down at the 43 meters down to the blue green water copper green water of the river the last thing in the world i ever wanted to do was jump off that ledge you think your your limbic system thinks you're it's you're not going to survive you're going to die and uh uh i'm standing there trying to figure out what uh, how i could turn around and uh, sully says to me hey dan uh, now's time to let it go just let it all go and i jumped and um that one action completely changed the rest of the arc of my life in terms of how I looked at things and and I just kind of figured after kind of sunk in over a few months that if I could face that fear and jump off that bridge then I could start facing uh, other fears things that I'd you know kicked the can down the road and and just not made decisions on about relationship and business I'd been in for 20 years had been probably 19 and a half years too long and Huh. Over the next three years, a whole, a whole bunch of things changed. But uh, I'm really convinced that uh, without, without that completely out of character decision to jump off that, uh, jump off that bridge, and that complete change in terms of my level of confidence in myself, uh, all these other things that happened uh, would uh, would would never have happened. So it's, uh, I have a deep respect when people, and that's what I do when I hear people's stories, I want to hear about, because everybody has these things that, uh, like facing the bully in the schoolyard, everybody has these things that are really terrifying in one way or another that we faced up to. Everybody has those, uh, whether you've jumped off a bridge or flown an airplane or whatever, it doesn't matter. Everybody has faced these things. And, you know, sometimes, lots of times we back, we back off and we learn something from from not facing it, but eventually we're going to, we're going to, we're going to face it and we're going to do it and it's going to make a difference. So tell me more about your other adventures. I'm, I'm sitting here listening to a guy who says, I'm really afraid of heights. This guy is telling me about bungee jumping and flying a plane solo. (laughs) You are way more crazy than I am. Then that's all I have to say. I think I, my, I don't know about that. <laughs> my uh, stretching myself examples, I can relate to the physical ones. I don't ski anymore, but when I used to ski, my favorite moment was was getting off a lift at the top of a run that I knew was too difficult for me. Because that, there's that getting off and your skis are just tipping over the edge. You have no choice. You're going down now. And I just love that moment, although I'm absolutely terrified. So I can relate to that. And the sense of achievement when you get to the bottom, if not unscathed, then at least alive, is great. So I love that. And also your story about naked bungee jumping reminds me of a rather funny story against myself of my own stupid bravery. I used to windsurf a little bit as well in in my 20s. And I was on vacation with a girlfriend of mine in Greece, and I rented a windsurfer. She didn't surf, so off I went. 
And it was back in the day where we all used to go to the beach naked. Now, I was wearing my bikini bottom, but I wasn't wearing the top. And yeah. I went whizzing out into the Mediterranean. And I'm very short-sighted. And I wasn't wearing contact lenses and obviously not wearing glasses. And when I came tootling back into the beach again, I realized that I'd come into the next bay along. I was not in the right place. Right. And by then the wind had changed, so I couldn't sail out on the windsurfer again to get back to the bay that I'd set off from. So picture the scene. I'm on a beach with a windsurfer, topless, <laughs> and have no way of getting back to the beach I started from. And this guy comes up to me and says, are you okay? So I explain the situation. And he said, well, if you leave the windsurfer here, that'll be fine. I know the guy who rented it to you, he'll come and get it. And I'll give you a ride back to the bay you started from on my motorbike. <laughs> so <laughs> I am topless on the back of a stranger's motorbike on a cliff road in Greece. And when I got back to the beach that I'd started from, my friend Susan just rolled her eyes and went, that is so fucking typical of you. <laughs> so that's, that's my, I'm, my bravery is, is just as likely to be stupidity as bravery. Uh, I think my other, my other bravery is, you know, when I was still a biochemist and I was very young, I was 21. And I was offered a job in the Max Planck Institute in Frankfurt in what was then West Germany. And I just accepted it and went. I didn't speak a word of German. I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. I just packed a small bag and finished up in Frankfurt working with all these amazing scientists way out of my depth. And then having done that for a while, I got a French boyfriend and went down to live in France on a beach with him for a while. So I do those kind of let's dive into a, a new life experience, living in a new place. I do that quite often. So what's interesting is what I'm trying to piece together is why did you decide to become a biochemist? That's far from a circus performer. Yeah. Answer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's quite far away and it was it was partly to do with yes I did really well in exams when I was in school I was a you know straight A student as you would call it I also was lucky enough to have some really inspiring teachers and this is something that I'm really passionate about now is the the value of inspiring teachers my physics teacher and my biology biology teacher when I was 17, 18 in school, were so amazing. And the physics teacher, actually, he did, he did walk the tightrope between being a circus performer and being a physics teacher. We had a double physics lesson on Friday mornings, and Thursday night on TV, it would be Monty Python's Flying Circus. And he would come in on Friday morning and almost replay every moment of Monty Python's Flying Circus for us before he got stuck into the physics. But he would somehow manage to weave the physics into the comedy and the comedy into the physics. His name was Dave Gregory. He was just the most inspiring teacher. And I didn't think I was that good at physics, but I, I got an A in A-level. Was, he was just fabulous. 
And ashamed to say, I can't remember the biology teacher's second name. His first name was John. And he was also really inspiring. So they were, they were the reasons why I chose to do biochemistry. I'll also be honest with you, I wanted to be in a class where it was mainly boys. You know, if I'd done, <laughs> if I'd done theater or English literature, it would have been a bit girly. And I was really keen uh, on nerds. I've always loved nerds. And all the classes at university were full of nerdy boys. So that was terrific. <laughs> um, that's funny. It, 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 that idea that that the inspiration we have around us um, is so it can be so impactful. I actually did a podcast yesterday uh, that, uh, and his name was, was if you listen to the podcast, his name was John. But uh, he had been a, mus- a professional musician, a bass player for for almost 40 years, but he had a very rough uh, upbringing. And uh, I said, well, how did you become such an accomplished uh, musician? And he credited to two different people that were inspirations. One that was in, uh, in uh, uh, Frankie, uh, Frankie Valley in Four Seasons was in the, in, in the band and lived across the street from him. And he spent, wow. he was 14, 15, he, uh, he spent every evening that the guy was home over there uh, seeing what he was doing and learning to be a musician. But he had these, these couple of different influences that had, and I said, how would you, uh, if you hadn't had these influences, what, what do you think would have happened? And he said, it would have ended very badly for me. So that, wow. it's uh, the, the impact and it makes, it, it just makes me think about the uh, impact that you can have on people, you know, as, as a modern elder that you can have on other people around you that you may not even realize, but it's important because, uh, you know, I've, and I've got, uh, my kids are older, my boys are, are 30 and 28, but, uh, you know, you still are an influence and impact and and um, if, if you can uh, provide some inspiration to people and remind them of, of who they are it can make a big difference you may ne- you may never know about it maybe, yeah maybe your teachers don't know about it either in terms of what you've accomplished but uh, that impact of other people you know I, most of most of my life i thought really i could do everything on my own i didn't need any inspiration i didn't need anybody to give me advice i didn't need anybody really to tell me what to do and yeah nothing really nothing really could be further from the truth that uh, that you you don't need all those things i mean you can do it without it but it's it's a little bit lonely and it's it's you're going to miss a lot when you uh, when you don't pay attention to what else is around you and I just think about how many times I'd, I had inspirations around me that I probably wasn't even open to paying attention. Well, that's right. Yeah, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about the two people that inspired me when I got to Frankfurt and I was working in the Max Planck Institute. So my immediate boss there was a guy called Jack Kaplan. And then my professor in university, I was at University in London, was a guy called Harold Baum, Professor Baum. And Professor Baum used to write uh, metabolic pathways 
as opera lyrics. So mm. he would sing the metabolic pathway to the tune of something from Gilbert and Sullivan or whatever. And he was the <laughs> first person, he was the first person to show me that there is no line between science and art. That oh. the very best scientists have an amazing imagination. And it does take a lot of imagination to imagine how a metabolic pathway might work or imagine how a subatomic particle might whiz around in an atom. So he really taught me that. And Jack Kaplan also was a very imaginative, creative guy. And they, yes, they were the inspiration that made me realize that science was a creative pursuit as much as it is an analytical pursuit. And then much later in life, and quite coincidentally, I was lucky enough to get to know a Nobel Prize winner called Baruch Bloomberg. So Barry Bloomberg won the Nobel Prize for identifying the hepatitis B virus. And uh, so I'm in a kayak next to Barry Bloomberg, yes, in a, on a lake in Maine one day. And I said, Barry, what was the inspiration? How did you make the breakthrough? in identifying the hep B virus. And he said, you know what, Kay, I broke the first rule of science. I allowed myself to anthropomorphize the virus. I allowed myself to give it a personality and a character. And I asked myself, what did it want? And that was the breakthrough. Hmm. And I, I get chills telling that story now. And I certainly got chills sitting in that kayak with him. Because, again, there was the proof that you need a great imagination in order to be a great scientist. So for me, there is no line. But I didn't realize that until it was a little too late. I, you know, if I'd realized it when I was still in biochemistry, I'd probably still be in it now. Well, but that, that uh, epiphany uh, does carry us forward. And again, it's very interesting to me because I was told, I don't know, probably seven or eight years ago in a reading by a friend of mine that, um, that, hey, Dan, your mind is very strong, you know, and it's, got, it's gotten you a long way, but it's not really what's going to get you further in life is using your lower mind, your analytical mind. Mm -hmm. and you have to let go of that. And then I've since, I don't know if you've read the book, The Untethered Soul by uh, Michael Singer, but uh, it, it, that's kind of my Bible in terms of what I try and follow now. But he talks about the fact that the, uh, the mind is continually, your, your egoic mind is continually giving you instruction what you ought to do and what's right and what's wrong and how you should show up. And you know, most people think they're the servant to that part of you, but that's not really who you are and you don't really even need to follow um, what the mind is telling you to do. You can actually make a decision to pretty much ignore it, don't give it that weight and actually just deal with what shows up in the universe. You know, if, if, if the universe is bringing things in for you to pay attention to, then you might well just pay attention to that and deal with that versus say it's, not something I can understand or can't figure that out. So I'll just discard it. And uh, uh, that has a, 
you know, once you start, once you, once you realize that you can't, you know, you can't figure out everything that's going to happen in the future. In fact, you can't really figure anything out. No. I think you can, but you really can't. So you might as well just give it up. And, uh, you know, I'm also a great believer in there is, there is no separation between mind and body. And it's funny, I'm sitting here at my desk as I speak to you, and I've just noticed that on my desk, I have Baruch Bloomberg's book, Hepatitis B, but I also have one of my favorite books, which is called Neither Brain Nor Ghost by T. Rockwell. And he, along with many very clever people, talks about how the mind is not embedded in the brain. Your mind is throughout your body and possibly also in the environment around you. Mm-hmm. So if we think that just thinking, talk thinking, as I call it, which is putting words onto thoughts, is all that we have to work things out, that's actually not the case. And I'm very fond of saying to my clients, change your body, change your mind, change the way you move, and you will have new ideas. You will change the way you think. But we have become addicted to this, oh, it's all in the mind, which means it's all in the head. And it's not. Yeah, it's, uh, I follow a lot of Joe Dispenza's work as well. It talks a lot about that. And, um, you know, everything has an intelligence. Every, every cell has yes. an intelligence. It's un- <laughs> that's, uh, every mitochondria has an intelligence and does things that, uh, that we have no idea what they're doing, but they... Uh, they do their own thing with their own intelligence. So. Yeah, and we, I think we're about to move into Buddhism, aren't we? So, you know, where is the line between the cell and the body? And where's the line between me and what's around me? In a, in a summary, I'm interested in uh, kind of what happened between you leaving biochemistry and where you are today uh, kind of give us a little little teaser because there's obviously a lot to fill in we haven't even touched on um, so what happened well what happened was for some reason I went into advertising and I know why I know how I got the jobs because because of my science background I was really good at data mm-hmm but also because of my love of the arts, I was quite good at words as well. So I became a strategist, you know, analyzing data and developing strategy out of that for brands. And the best and the worst thing that happened to me was that I was so good at it because I was very successful. By the age of 28 or 29, I was on the board of a London ad agency. I was very high profile, earning loads of money And I sat on my discomfort with working in that world for some 20 odd years. And you mentioned something like this too, about, you know, 19 and a half years when you should have known better. And yeah, I I was uh, sucked in by being good at it and by the money and the lifestyle. And it really went against everything that my family had taught me to value but I did keep doing it for a long time. And also I was the breadwinner in the family, so I, I stuck with it. And to be fair to my wonderful clients, you know, big organizations like Procter & Gamble, it was my clients that encouraged me to go into 
internal communications rather than brand. So I moved away from helping them communicate about their brands and moved into helping them resolve conflicts and communication issues within the company. And at the same time, I, I don't know how long I've got, but I started studying acting and dance and yoga and started developing my creative self again, which has been great. So I think we'll get into that in the, in the next show if we, if we can. Uh, but what did that 20 years of doing something that you can easily say, no, I really shouldn't have been doing that. What, what do you think that actually did for you though? Huh. Mm. It made me a lot of really wonderful friends. One of whom was just trying to interrupt our conversation by calling me. That would be a woman that I've known for 30 some years. So I'm still in touch with a lot of those people. I learned to listen in that time because I was doing a lot of qualitative research. I was sitting in a lot of meetings. So I became a very good listener and a very good noticer. And I became very good at condensing data, which I had learned some of when I was in science anyway, but I really became very good at insight you know, finding the bit of data that no one else had noticed, finding the weird contradictions that made things interesting. So those things probably had have value and benefit in terms of what you're doing now. Absolutely. Even though we can all say to ourselves, you know, why didn't I figure it out sooner? And, you know, why, you know, why'd I do that? And I, I have lots of those stories on, on my end too, but in the end, you know, I'm sure there's, there's always a reason why we're there and, and it's up to us, the choices, the choices we make in terms of uh, what's, what's next, but because uh, there's not really any wrong decisions. It's just, it's just life and it's just experiences. Yeah, that's right. I have a dear friend, Rob, who says career is more of a verb than a noun. We're just careering through life, bouncing off things. So I, I want to thank you, first of all, for being on the podcast, Kay, and your story is, I know we haven't really gotten to a lot of it, but uh, it's very inspiring in terms, of, uh, in terms of what was important to you and what, how you've expressed your own feelings and emotions in your life, and uh, with a lot of bravery and courage that... Uh, is uh, sorely lacking probably in in, uh, <laughs> in many uh, many of us and uh, it's a great inspiration and uh, what i want to hear next time is more about the fun and have more fun.org and, and the things that you're doing now and uh, what your what your next steps are if you'll uh, if you'll join us again but it's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the on the podcast um uh, completely impressed with uh, what you've created for yourself thank you dan and this time has flown by thank you so much thank you we will talk we will talk again thank you for being with us thanks for listening to this is personal rewinding a life if you like the podcast please leave a nice review and a rating and share it with your friends it all would be greatly appreciated you can find me at dansimon.co as well as on Instagram, DanSimonTV, or Twitter, at DanSimonTV. 
Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next podcast.